Good to be back tonight and how grateful I am for uh, the good service already. I was just sitting there thinking how I, I fear uh, that when people have such an abundance of talent and such wonderful leadership, it's very easy for us to take for granted those things. I, my mind went back to the time when I lived up Tallulah Falls. There's a big old gorge up there in the northeast part of the state of Georgia. And uh, it's quite a tourist attraction. Uh, Hollywood's come in and filmed quite a few uh, films there. Uh, Mr. Walinda walked across the gorge on a tightrope. And uh, it's a very popular place to a lot of people. And uh, I, I, I was reflecting a moment ago how uh, folks had come in and they had talked about Georgia's gorgeous gorge and uh, all of that, you know. And, uh, and really, it is just a hole in the earth to me. I just took it for granted. It had always been there and I figured it always would be. Uh, I'd drive across the bridge, never look one way or the other to observe it. I just took it for granted. But it's amazing when uh, new people come in how impressed they are uh, with the grandeur of a thing. And I think that's true uh, about your church. Uh, I get to come in every once in a while and uh, I'm so impressed every time I come uh, with the great blessing of God upon your church, uh, the abundance of talent under the leadership of your fine pastor. And uh, I tell you, there are a lot of people in our country uh, who would give an arm and a leg, uh, so to speak, to have a church uh, so blessed as your church here uh, is uh, under God. And uh, I hope you'll never take those things for granted. I just listened to the instruments being played tonight and the choir and the choral group singing. Uh, I've been in a lot of churches where, man, alive, you squirm the seed of your britches out, hoping they'll hurry up and get through. Uh, Sally Joe's off key, and the fellow who's playing the pianos hitting notes that are foul, and the preacher gets up and preaches and hardly knows where to start or where to end. And uh, I tell you, take for granted some of the good things that God's given you. And I hope you'll never do that here at Piney Heights, that you'll always be uh, mindful of the blessing God has given you and the great store of talent that he has bestowed on your church. I thank God for you and even the memory of this church and uh, the blessings that have been mine in days past are kind of goads uh, to just keep me moving on and determining in my heart to be a more faithful and more diligent and dedicated servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you so much for remembering me in your prayers. It means so much to know that people like you and your pastor are praying for me. And God's been so good, and I praise him for it. Uh, I want to thank you as well. I'm sure the pastor mentioned something about uh, Pat being in the automobile accident back in June. Uh, several of you have asked about her, and I do want to want you to know uh, that she's doing a lot better. Uh, she graduated from the hospital bed to the wheelchair and then graduated from there to the walker, and now she's up on her two feet and giving me a fit every time I come around. And so she's getting better. And I want you to know how much I appreciate your thoughtfulness and prayers on her behalf and ours uh, during that time of great concern. You know, the preacher does look good in that suit, don't he, huh? 
But I tell you, you I don't care what you put on a fella. Uh, you, you don't change him at all. You know, he's the same ornery old cuss that he's always been. And uh, you can dress him up, but I'll guarantee you he's still the same. That reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about a fellow way up north who decided uh, or fell on a plan how to make a lot of money. Uh, he tried, bought him an old uh, uh, mean-looking bulldog, a fierce, ferocious animal. And boy, he fed that fellow gunpowder and uh, teased him and trained him to be mean. And uh, he started out on a journey and would stop at every little uh, store he could find where men were gathered around. And he'd start bragging on that dog, how that dog could whip everything that ever come around. And uh, they'd say, oh, he can't whip my dog. And the fella would say, well, I bet you so much he can. And so they'd gather the dogs up. And that old bulldog would just whip everything uh, that anybody brought around. Well, he made his journey hundreds of miles down the East Coast, cut across Georgia, went over in Alabama, wound up over in Mississippi in a little country t town. And a bunch of men, uh, some little nigger boys, gathered around the old front end of the country store. And uh, he drove up, uh, pulled that bulldog out, and got to bragging on that thing, you know, and said, man, uh, this dog whip anything you fellas got around here. Nobody said anything. Finally, a boy spoke up and he said, no, sir. Said he can't whip old yellow. And the fella said, why, son, old yellow, old blue, old red, I'll tell you, he can whip anything you got around here. And the little fella said, no, sir. Said he can't whip old yellow. Well, he said, we'll just see. He said, you go bring old yellow up here and we'll just see if he can whip old yellow or not. And the boy said, no, sir. Said old yellow won't come up here. Well, he said, why is that? Well, he said, he's under the house and he won't come out. Well, he said, i tell you what we'll do. We'll take this dog down there and I'll just sick him on old yeller. And they got in the car and drove off down. Some fellas to pick up trucks came in and that fella got the dog out and man, he sicked him up under the house and you never heard such a racket in your life. They're squalling, yelping and all kind of dust flying from under that house and directly that bulldog came a dragging himself out, one hind leg completely torn off, his ears split all to pieces, and he is just a terrible bloody looking mess. And when he came out, the man saw that and shook his head and said, my soul, I can't believe this, son. Why, he said, what do you call old yeller anyhow? Well, he said, son, we called him Gator for we painted him yellow. <laughs> and so I tell you now, you can paint this fella up any color you want, but he's tough. And uh, uh, that's right, but he does look better. I'll declare, I don't know if he's looking better or I'm getting blind. I don't know what. But uh, uh, it's always good to be with Brother Bill. And I, my feeling for him is mutual. Uh, he's the closest friend I guess I have on this earth. Uh, I have a brother who is a Baptist preacher. Uh, we're, we get along all right together. Uh, but you know, uh, I guess you can count on your fingers and probably wouldn't use all your fingers on one hand the real friends that you have in this world. Uh, folks who love you in spite of everything that you are, love you in spite of knowing everything there is to know about you, and yet I believe that's the kind of friends uh, that people need, and I believe as Christians, that's the kind of friends ought to be to each other. Amen? I believe that with my heart. All right, thank you again for praying for our meetings. I was just up, you mentioned Brother Hall, is just up in Hampton week before last and had a wonderful time of blessing up there. 
and uh, he's excited about the prospects and the future of getting to come back and fellowship with you and share with you the Word of God, a great man of God whom we love dearly. All right, enough of that. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea chapter 4, and I want to read verse number 6 and think with you about a fact that is mentioned in the first part of this verse. Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 6. Hosea follows the book of Daniel. If you should have a problem finding it, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah in that section. So if you will, find it and uh, follow us in the reading of verse number 6. Hosea 4, 6, and the prophet says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, there's no need in my reading the rest of that verse because I wouldn't have time to talk about it if I did. But I want us to think about this startling statement that is made here by the Lord's prophet when he said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Mankind is born with an innate desire for knowledge. Men are born with a desire to know. When a little baby is born into this world, one of the first things you begin to note about that infant is an outreaching and a thirst for knowledge. From the time mama puts the little toys in the crib, the rattler in his hand, the little child, baby it reaches out and with the sense of touch and feeling is gaining knowledge. And it seems that that little child from its very beginning reaches out through the sense of feeling and hearing and smell and taste and touch and the others and all in an effort to gain knowledge. Man has an insatiable thirst for knowledge. I'll never forget those frustrating times when my children were but, uh, well, in their infancy and time and again go into the bedroom and find one of my boys down in the middle of the bedroom floor with the alarm clock in one hand and a screwdriver in the other. Screws laying all over the floor and maybe over here a spring had already popped out and a cogwheel laying over there and I felt like murdering a little rascal, you know, but then when I'd back off, I'd realize one thing, and that is the outstanding thing about mankind, that youngster had a desire to know. He wanted to understand, and the many numerous questions that come to the mother and dad's ear as the child is growing up, uh, mama, what makes the sky blue, or what makes water wet, mama, where did God come from, and how many times you ever heard them say uh, after giving them some order or denying them some privilege uh, and the question comes why? Why? Again, maybe under mask and cover it is uh, but there is down in the soul of every human being a desire to know and uh, God made us that way and desires that we indeed have knowledge. Knowledge. 
There have been given to us many things that teach us and give us knowledge. I think time is one of the great teachers in life, don't you? Uh, a fella cannot live very long on this earth and not learn something. And the passing of time, there is a gaining of knowledge. And then not only that, but the experiences in life are indeed, as some philosophers said, the greatest of all teachers. A man learns from experiences in his life. You learn when you touch a hot stove that it'll burn you. You learn when you touch a, a naked wire of a, 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 in the house uh, that electricity will shock you. There are a lot of experiences that teach us and give us a great store of knowledge. But yet there is one other source, and we could go through many others, uh, but I go immediately to the main source of real knowledge, uh, and that is uh, the book of knowledge. I'm not talking about an encyclopedia, but I'm talking about the Word of God. A man, if he had started when first he is able to read and consider constantly and continuously the Word of God, ah, listen, that individual at the end of his life, if he has read and studied and understood and applied, would be a man superior in knowledge to anyone else on this earth. God's Word is a book of knowledge. And if you want to learn real knowledge, and real truth say that never changes. You need to get in the Word of God. You can study the Word of science and you'll read one thing one day about a theory or about something they say is a fact and five days later the scientist comes around and he changes his mind. But say isn't it wonderful when you get to the Bible that God never changes His Word. He never changes His mind. It is a book of solid, genuine, reliable truth. And in this day when there is so little to really rely upon how comfort it is when you come to the Word of God and discover there the greatest of all knowledge. You know, men spend billions upon billions of dollars in our nation and in the world just to gain knowledge. They spend billions of dollars on the spacecraft and rockets to see men out in the realms of space in order to do one thing basically and that is to gain a knowledge. A mother and dad sacrifice material things and finances in order to give their children an advantage to learn to have knowledge. And so this thing of knowledge is a very, very important thing. And the Bible has a lot to say about what a man ought to know. Hey, let me ask you one other thing. How many times have you in the course of the last seven days had someone to come up to you and as just a means of greeting you say, hey, what do you know? Have you had that question to ask lately? I could not count really on my hands and toes how many times in the last week people have said to me, hey preacher, what do you know? Now, I know that's but a friendly greeting and it's a good way to greet somebody, but hey, wait a minute. I want to ask you tonight, what do you know? Do you have a kind of knowledge that is lasting and eternal or that is perishing? Do you have the kind of knowledge that is reliable and unchangeable? 
Well, I think when you look in the Bible, you begin to discover that there are some things that the greatest of all men ever have come to know. And they are things, by the way, listen to me, that you and I can know and that God wants us to know. I think of a man in the Old Testament about one of the oldest patriarchs known of a man, Job, that fellow who went through a lot of trial and turmoil and yet could say, though he slay me, yet I'm going to trust him and I will trust him. I turn to Job and if I should meet him, I'd like to say to him, hey, Job, what do you know? And you know what I think I'd hear old Job say? I find his response in Job 19 and verse 25. And I hear Job say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Hey, I wonder if you can really say that. Or simply your knowledge, a halfway knowledge and an uncertain thing. And you can only say, well, I think he lives or I sure hope he does. But Job was very certain. He had been to the school of God and gained a knowledge that is irreplaceable. And that knowledge was that God indeed was alive. His Redeemer was a living Redeemer. And I'm glad we serve that kind of Savior, aren't you? I'm glad we do not serve a pot-bellied God like the Buddhists serve and bow before and worship who can neither turn his hand nor grant a wish nor hear a prayer nor answer one. But rather, Job said, he is not an idol. He is not some God interred in a tomb. He is not some God on a shelf. But he is a living, a breathing, a God who indeed is alive. Now, I think there are a lot of reasons a fellow can say that, don't you? I think one reason Job could say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I think he could say it because of the fact of creation itself. It's an interesting thing when you go back to the book of Job. Now, look this way and think with me. When you go back to the book of Job and look at verse chapter 38 and 39... You'll find God taking Job on a marvelous journey. He takes him out into the realms of space and points out to him the stars and asks him who has measured all of this. Can you understand that? Have you discovered the springs of the sea? Can you describe the value of hail? Can you describe farming the snows that fall? Do you understand these things? And he began to take Job on a tour and a journey over all of the creation of this this very universe. And then he took him on a journey that led him down the halls of the biology department and he showed him mankind and the wonder and the grandeur and the miracle of man himself. And ah, no wonder after such a journey, Job could say, listen, I know that my Redeemer liveth. When you look in the universe around you, there is evidence of the very signature of God. His handwriting is upon everything that is created and everything that we know. And all of creation tells us of this living God, this risen Lord, this living Savior and Redeemer. I look at the universe and when I look at it, I observe, first of all, a marvelous, miraculous design. Say, there is design in this universe. The movement of the planets, 
the stars in their place. And even so, they are so precise that, the, that our watches are set by that star upon which the Naval Observatory uh, focuses its, its, its eye. And they can tell us the very exact time that we go by and that we govern ourselves by in business and work and home and play and school. Ah, the very preciseness, precision of the universe, its movements, the turning of one season to the other that does not fail from one year to the next. Summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, on and on the very cycle goes. Do you know what it says when you look at it? That very fact tells us that there is a design in even the creation of by God of this universe, there is design. Now, when you find design, hey, there is a conclusion that a fellow draws. And that is behind a design, there is a designer. I look at the ladies in this house and the men who wear different kinds of clothes. Uh, uh, you go down the store and uh, some of you ladies find a very beautiful dress, a gown. And uh, you buy that because of the design. Hey, that dress did not happen by accident. Though some I've seen I think may have. But hey, there was a designer behind even that that so appeals to your eye. A man's suit, his clothes that he wears has all been designed. And there is a design in it. And that design speaks of and concludes the fact that there is a designer even behind that design. And when I look at the design of the creation, the sun and the planets and their orb and the continuous constant movement of those planets and the the unchanging seasons from year to year, I have to conclude there is a designer behind that. Oh, I know there are those who would try to tell us that all of this came about by some freakish, foolish accident that happened way in the distant past of millions of years ago. All of this came about as some kind of an explosion that happened, an accident out in space. But can you really believe that? As an intelligent, rational, reasoning human being, can you believe that all that we know in the world around us and in the world within us, can you believe that that happened by an accident? Look within at man and the miracle of man. Listen, no scientist ever developed a machine that compares with man. No man has ever, has ever invented a computer that compares with the capacity and the capability and the, and, and the very fortune there is in the brain of one human being. Look at his systems, if you will, the digestive system that takes into its body, uh, takes into the human body a solid substance. And that solid substance is, is so miraculously treated that, that that solid becomes energy that causes us to be able to move and to work and to play and so forth. What a miracle that system is. The circulatory system. The blood that circles, circulates through your body that keeps you alive and breathing. Not only that, but I look at mankind and I just see miracle everywhere. But when I look at man, I don't care where he is. I don't care what, he, what kind of person he is, what color his skin. There is a miracle when you look at man. And there is a definite design that you can trace and follow. And that tells me there is a designer behind this design of man. 
The scientist looks through his microscope into the microscopic world and he finds those things that are unseen to the natural eye. And you know what he discovers? He discovers an orderliness. He discovers a design. And one scientist who came to know Christ said, the thing that awoke me to the reality of a living God was when I peered through my microscope into that world that is beneath us and I saw an orderliness and a design and I saw in it the very footprint of God that led me to the fact that he indeed was and that he indeed is alive. Could these things happen by accident? I don't think any intelligent person in their mind can come to that conclusion. Could you imagine a fellow walking up to William Shakespeare And Shaky and I never did hit it off too well together in school, by the way. But could you imagine a fellow walking up to Shakespeare and saying, Hey, Bill, let me ask you something. That play you wrote, Julius, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Somebody said, Romeo'd what Juliet. And maybe there's a point there. But anyway, I can't say to him, Hey, Bill, let me ask you something. How did you write that masterpiece for the theater? Could you imagine Shakespeare saying, well, my friend, one rainy day I seated in my bedroom and I had a pair of scissors in one hand and I was cutting out letters out of the English alphabet. I had a whole box full of them. But I decided I want to go downstairs and get me something to eat. And he said, I picked that box of letters up that I'd cut out and I started walking down the steps. And he said, you know what? I stumbled, I fell, and tumbling head over heels, I landed down on the floor, down in the living room floor of my house. But he said, you know what? When I got up, I looked out there, and would you believe that all of the letters of the English alphabet had fallen in their right place, and right there before my eyes, the play Romeo and Listen, I don't know about you, but I'd say, Miss Shakespeare, evidently somebody dropped you in your head when you was a baby. Something is drastically wrong if you think that great play came into existence by reason of accident. You hear the choir sing at Christmas time the beautiful classic piece known as Messiah. Could you imagine going to Handel and saying to him, Mr. Handel, I want to ask you something. That beautiful composition known as Messiah. The Hallelujah Chorus. I like that, don't you? I like to sing that. Every time I hear it, I just want to holler Hallelujah myself. And anyway, could you imagine going to him and saying, Miss Sandler, let me ask you something. How in the world, how in the world did you ever come upon that composition? And he'd say, my friend, it is all an accident. One day I was angry, standing in my, my, my studio I reached into a bucket where I had a bunch of little notes cut out of paper and I just picked a whole handful of them up and began to throw handful after handful at the at the chalkboard where I had lines and spaces drawn and would you believe it? Those notes just automatically and accidentally fell in place right on the right lines on the and the right spaces and lo and behold, I had the composition known as the Messiah. I want to tell you something that's foolish reasoning. 
But I want to tell you it's even more foolish when a man looks at the marvelous, miraculous, grand design of this universe around us and the marvel and the miracle of human life and he comes to the idiotic, moronic conclusion that all of it happened by an accident. Hey, do you know why a man tries to deny God? Because he is a fool. The psalmist said, the fool, get this, that said in his heart, there is no God. You know why the Bible said in his heart? For that's where his trouble is. It's not in his head. A man with an intelligent brain can reason the fact of the very existence of God. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Man's trouble is down in his heart. And the reason a man wants to do away with God is for the simple reason that the fact and the knowledge and the consciousness of that God makes him miserable in his following sin and his committing of sin. It makes him uncomfortable to know that there is a God and that just as sure as there is a God, he will stand before that God and give answer and account of himself for what he has done in this life. Boy, that makes a fellow miserable. You know, when I was growing up, I, uh, I, I think I could have well been a disobedient fellow and, and probably, well, probably done a whole lot more than I did if it were not constantly for the awareness and the fact that I was going to go have to go home and I was going to have to face mom, I was going to have to face dad, I was going to have to give an account of myself. Oh, listen, how uncomfortable the fool-hearted man becomes when he thinks of God and the fact that the Bible presents, and that is this, so every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Some fear when the accountant comes to check their books on this earth. But I will tell you something, there should be a greater fear than that. For the great heavenly accountant someday will come to check our books. He'll want to know as he searches through them the answer for this, the reason for this. Ah, oh, what would you say if that heavenly accountant were to call you into accounting tonight? Again then, the fact is, I know that my Redeemer lives by reason of the creation. On and on we could go, but say, I think I want to say this. I know that my Redeemer lives because of the change that he wrought in my life. Religious in my day, from my earliest remembrance, went to church, heard preaching, heard the Bible read every evening by a dad or a mother who loved God, heard the prayers of a sainted mother for the salvation of a children's soul, but yet rejecting that very Christ whom she loved and adored and followed through many years of my life. And yet, listen, trying all the while desperately to be a Christian without ever having received Christ. That brought utter frustration, misery, confusion, despair. Until there came the moment in my life in such utter despair, though a head full of religious knowledge, a head full of Bible verses, yet I never truly personally received Christ. And there came the moment in my life when I literally wanted to end my life. I wanted to get away from all of the confusion. 
But that night when I invited Jesus Christ to become my Savior, He wrought a change in my heart. No one else can bring such a change. I read the books of science. They never changed me. I heard the great philosopher give his discourse, but that never changed me. But the thing that changed my life was that night when change in his life. From distress and misery to joy and contentment and peace. From a life that had no reason for living to a life that had reason and purpose in its life. Ah, he can bring that change in your heart. And bring you from a place and a life of fear to one of calmness and faith. The change that he wrought gives me to know that my Redeemer lives. Not only that, but I would like to look at that great singer of Israel. And if I were to meet him, I think I'd say to him, David, I want to ask you a question. What do you know? And I can hear David responding many things, but here's the thing that impressed me. I read in Psalm 56 and verse number 9, and I hear David saying, For this I know, for God is for me. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? When sometimes we think everybody in the world's against us, God said, Hey, I'm for you. Man, that ought to, that ought to put a, a, a backbone in a fella like a bulldog. Uh, that ought to give him a courage and a determination that nothing else can give to know that God is for me. And I want to tell you tonight, he is for you. And as you surrender yourself to him and receive him, he will prove over and over and over again that he is for you. And everything that he has done and everything that he will do is for you. I think I know he is for me by reason of his command. They seemed severe when I first heard them. And I used to hear the preacher give this command from the scripture and it made me very uncomfortable. Somehow I felt like the preacher was frailing the daylights out of me. And I felt like that the way he said it for some reason, God was just out to get me. And I used to hear him say in Acts 17 and verse 30, he, I'd hear the preacher quote those, those words. And now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And sometimes when we hear the sermon on repentance, we feel like, boy, God's just going to sneak up on us and clobber us real good. We feel like that God is against us when he says in stern and forceful convicting word, repent. But he says it lovingly but yet forcefully. And says in that very command, I'm for you. You say, how in the world, Brother Walt, could God be for me and him tell me to repent for this reason? What if a mother were to see her child playing in the yard and she, that child wanders over toward the corner of the, lo the yard? And frightened, the mother looks out there to see a coiled rattlesnake. Its head is cocked back, ready to strike. And the mother says, but forcefully and lovingly get away from there. Back away from that corner. Would the child be right in its assumption that if it said mother is against me, she don't want me to play with this attractive thing I found in the corner of the, of the yard. But mother is for the child. For she knows the danger that lies but one step more the child takes toward that serpent. 
And when God says to a man, repent, when there is conviction in your heart over sin and God makes you restless and miserable and uncomfortable, I want to tell you, he does so because he loves you and knows unless you do repent. As he said himself, and Luke recorded it in Luke 13 and verse 3, and Luke said his words, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I read in Peter's word, he said this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come, what? To repentance. God's command is saying, Walter Burl, I'm for you. I want you to turn away from your sin, for it is nothing there but disaster. Nothing there but ruin. Nothing there but death. Nothing there but horror. Repent, his command says. And I think I know he is for me by reason of the act of his crucifixion. Who could have a greater friend than one who would lay down his life? And yet Jesus laid his life down for you and me. I want to tell you he's saying in the agony of that hour of the cross, the thorns were piercing his brow the ugly filthy flies and gnats swarmed around that drying blood and when his joints seemed that they were pulling from their sockets and those who were beneath him cursed him and spat on him and a Roman soldier ran a spear piercing into his side and yet he hangs there willingly lovingly Dying in my place, man, how can any human being ever look at the cross and say, God is not for me? He is for you. And he's for you to the degree that he would die for you to keep you out of hell. He's for me. It overwhelms me. Wouldn't it be fine if the president were to wire you tonight and say, hey, my friend, I know you're in a little bit of a bind and a little bit of pressure, but I want you to know I'm for you. Man, you'd run over the countryside waving that telegram said, hey, the president said he is for me. If you were down under some financial pressure and the banker called you the president of the bank and the chairman of the board and he said, listen, don't you worry one other minute about any material things. Don't worry about the money business. I'm for you, fella. Man, you would shout that out all over this countryside. But I want to tell you one greater than all men combined is our God who said, my child, I'm for you. That ought to make a Presbyterian shout, huh? Ought to just stir us to do great things for God. Not only that, I thank you. I look at David and Job. But I look down into the book of Ecclesiastes and I'd like to talk to wise men, don't you? Nobody likes to talk to a fool. Nobody likes to talk to somebody that they don't know what they're talking about. And I turned to the one of the wisest men who ever lived, Solomon. And I turned to his book of Ecclesiastes and I read in chapter 9 and verse 5 and I say, Hey, what do you know? And I hear Solomon reminding me of something somber and something sobering. And in that chapter 9 and verse 5, Solomon wrote, The living know that they shall die. Hey, we know that, but we don't like to think about it, do we? But I'm going to tell you something. 
whether you like it or not, you're dying. From the moment you breathed your first breath into this world, you started dying. You thought you started living. You started dying. And moment by moment brings us closer and closer to the inevitable moment. Many a man is dying and he don't want to face it. He knows it, but he don't want to face it. Makes him uncomfortable. Makes him miserable to think that somehow, quickly, he could be out of this life and out of this world. The living know that one thing about it. But you are, and there are reminders of it. Do you know why I wear glasses? I used to not wear them. Some three, four years ago, I got to where my arm wasn't long enough. I just couldn't see it. And if I had that long arm, I think I, could, I wouldn't have had to wear glasses. But my doctor said to me, Preacher, I want to tell you, you need glasses. Do you know why I'm wearing glasses? Because I'm dying. My eyes once could see as well as the youngest in this audience. But I will tell you something. Moment by moment, mankind grows weaker and closer to that moment of death. I used to have hair, believe it or not, on my head. Now about the only place I've got it's under my arms and over my eyes. If I could transplant some, it'd be all right, but it'd be embarrassing to have to put roll roll on on your head, you know. But nonetheless, I'm dying. You know why? My my hair tells me that's coming out. I find the other day that I'm kind of getting hard of hearing in the right ear. You say, no wonder the mouth like you got, you ought to be stone deaf. Well, you may be after this is over. Well, unless my, my steps grow a little weary. It's harder to get up. Some I turned 50 the other day. And somebody said, uh, how is it now that you're 50 years old? I said, well, I can do the same thing I've always done. just takes me a little longer to do it. There's a point there. But I'm growing moment by moment toward that moment. When this life on this earth will be over. Now, I do not tell you that to make you morbid. And to cause you to run out now and call the undertaker and say, Hey, reserve me a space tomorrow. The preacher said it's tomorrow. I didn't. The whole story is it could be tonight. What I'm trying to get you to understand, my friend, is you need to know that though you are living, you are going to die. We got a lot of people who live like death is never going to come. A wise man once said, the wisest of all men is that man who lives every day as though he knew it were his last. What wisdom there is in that. So the living know that you'll die, Solomon says. Well, I, I run upon a fellow whom I love. and I say to him, hey, Paul, you're one of my favorite preachers. What do you know, Paul? And I hear him as he records his word in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. And Paul said, what I know, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep that that I've committed to him again Saturday. Man, he knows something, doesn't he? Notice he didn't say, I know what I believe. Now, you ought to know what you believe. But he is talking about something far more important than what you believe. He's talking about the one in whom you trust. 
the one in whom you've placed your faith. For you see, to know him is to know life eternal. Not to know what or it or that, but him. Salvation is in this whom, Paul said, the one in whom I believe. The religions of our world that are false always present to man some program that they should follow. And this is redemption, they say. They'll come across with a new kind of philosophy and say, hey, if you'll adopt this philosophy, then this is life for you. They come along and say again in a religious tone, if you'll think positively, we've got a new psychology. And if you'll get your thinking in this vein, then boy, everything will be all right. Somebody else said, hey, if you want redemption and salvation, it's in participating in this activity or that. Or participating in this sacrament. Participating in this ordinance. Participating in this ritual. But would you like to know, and I challenge you to find it for yourself in your own Bible, this book presents redemption in a person, not in a philosophy, not in some practicing practice of life or some participation in some code of life, not in a psychology, but in a person. I know whom I believe, Paul said. And knowing in whom I believed, I think John could be heard to say, Hey, we know we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. And I hear him say finally in 1 John 5 verse 13, listen to this. And these things have I written unto you. That's that book of knowledge. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That you may know you have eternal life. Now I can talk about a lot of things else the Bible talks about in this realm of knowledge and knowing. But I've said enough, I think, for you to get the point. The knowledge that is so essential is that knowledge of that living Redeemer who becomes a personal Redeemer. And a knowledge that comforts us face eternity that causes us not to guess or to hope or to think but to know that we have eternal life. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Let me ask you, do you know the things I've talked about from this book tonight? Is he really living in relation to that are you ready for that and finally I ask do you have that knowledge that says I know I have eternal life do you know that oh you say I know some Bible verse no do you know that you have life this book will tell you of that one who gives life for they are they which testify of me Jesus said the scripture and you would not come to me, that's that person, that you might have life.
come to Pine Heights Baptist Church. You listen, Sunday after Sunday, one of the finest preachers on the face of this earth, a man who's been faithful and loyal and true to the Word of God through the years. And yet you've heard that, but I want to ask you something. Have you failed to recognize that the person of Christ is the only one who can save you? You may come to this church, you may be a member of the church, you may do the best you can, but have you ever received this person? If you haven't, I pray you'll leave tonight able to say, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he not it, or that, or them, but he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Have you committed your life to him? Have you surrendered to him? Have you received him? If not, I pray you'll do it tonight. Please bow your heads with me for prayer. With our heads bowed and we pray together.